Welcome to Faith Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. If you have a Bible, please just, at least for the beginning, open to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Pastor Joe promised me before the service that for every name I miss, he'll give each of you a $100 bill. He's that confident. Matthew 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brethren. And Judah begot Phares and Zerah of Tamar. Phares begot Esron, Esron begot Aram. Aram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nasun, Nasun begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab, Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. How's he doing so far? Is he okay? And David the king begot Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jodham, Jodham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, and Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brethren about the time they were carried away into Babylon. How are we doing? And after they were carried away into Babylon, Jeconiah begot Solotil, Solotil begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Sadok, Sadok begot Achim, Achim begot Eliad, Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matan, Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the carrying away into Babylon, 14 generations. From the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ, Oh, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When is his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph before they came together? She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, for she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, took unto him his wife, knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. That was just chapter one. Micah, real quick, put up the, the, the stories. Look at this doesn't have anything to do with anything. But look at what we've been, can you turn those fans off? What do you think it is, summertime in here? <laughs> that was just chapter one. Look what we did in October. Look at that from Fox News. Thank you very much. The whole New Testament from memory. I organized it, myself and six others. And there's another one, look at that one. Not once, but twice. It was on Fox, it was that amazing. That's pretty great. Give God all the glory. Can you imagine reciting the entire book of Matthew from memory, word for word? No, you can't. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, Yahweh, I need someone who can tell Matthew from memory. How am I going to find someone who can tell the book of Matthew from memory? I'm praying this. God, give me someone who knows Matthew. Cross my heart, hope to die, on a dungeon. About a week or two later, I get a piece of fan mail. Retired school teacher, Kokomo, Indiana belongs to the same fellowship this church is. He's like, I saw you in a magazine, and I wanted to let you know I have Matthew. Yes. <laughs> and Romans. And who has all of Proverbs memorized? Like, how can you do that? And all of Proverbs memorized if you ever need me. It's like, yes. So God brought this team together, and we did something that has never been done before. The whole New Testament, from heart 
And I was telling my wife, even now there's angels here. Because that's what the scriptures say. There's angels when we gather together. That's why women are supposed to have their head covered. But that's a different story. And uh, I was saying to myself, to my wife, I wonder if this is the first time it's ever happened where the whole New Testament was told from heart. Or at least the first time in a long, like 500 years or something. I wonder what angels showed up to that. To watch it. Because they desired to look into these things. I wonder if like Michael had time in his schedule to like pop in and see Revelation or something. Maybe for a little while. I don't know. But it's pretty neat stuff. Pretty neat stuff. Well, the average person who checks into a Holiday Inn or something like that and opens up the nightstand and pulls out the Word of God and says, maybe I'll read the Bible, you know. They open to the first page of the New Testament and they encounter this laundry list of names that they can't even pronounce, much less they ever heard of before, and they really don't know what, what to make of this. In many ways, it's kind of like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade for those of you who used to watch that growing up. We did and, um, you know, you have the parade, and then, you know, you're looking and looking and looking, and then, of course, the place, the seat of honor is right at the end, not Santa Claus, right? But the last one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first page of the New Testament, the first chapter of the New Testament, in many ways, is like the first page, the first chapter of the Old Testament, just like Genesis opens up with a very dry genealogy, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day and then after that's finished, there's an unpacking, there's a narrative, there's an account then that gives more information in regards to the creation of the first man. It's the same thing here in the New Testament. Remember, chapters don't come into the Bible. It's, this is not what happened. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 2. Like, that's not what happened. The chapters come in later. The chapters come in the 13th century A.D. Verses come into the Bible in the 16th century A.D. The person who invented chapter divisions, his name is Cardinal de Hugo in 1260. And the person who invented verse divisions, or at least is responsible for it, they say, this is a tough one, a Protestant printer from Paris. Yes, a Protestant printer from Paris in the 16th century invented verse divisions. His name was Robert Stephanus, and according to tradition, when he would take his cart back to and fro from work, he would demarcate in the text where he thought the verses went. And now we're stuck with it. <laughs> For better or worse, till death do us part, you can't change the verses. The words are of God, obviously, but the chapter and the verse, to break, the verse divisions are, are of man. And so the, the first part of this verse, let's look at that, or first part of this chapter, I should say, verses 1 through 17. Verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Let's pause real quick. Of course, uh, book, they're not thinking of a book like you have a book right here. It's a scroll. The word is a scroll. And your average scroll in the world of the Bible, generally speaking, was about uh, 25, 30 foot long, maybe the length of this room or something right here. This book, this genealogy we're looking at is just that. It's the, the, the family tree, the ancestry.com, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can see right there in verse 1, um, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's interesting, David, who's born approximately 1000 BC. Abraham, who's born approximately 2165 BC. David gets the first place and Abraham gets the second place. But the reason that these two are mentioned is these are the two essential ancestors the Messiah had to have. Of course, if you're a Jew, everyone had Abraham. That one's easy. That box is checked and done. You know? But David, not so much. We'll get to that in a moment. But the reason these two are mentioned off the bat is it has to do with the covenants and the promises of God. 
the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant, make a long story short, has to do with land and family. It's all about land and family in the world of the Bible. Those are the two huge, huge things, land and family. Well, if you're going to have a land and you're going to have a family, you have to have a king to rule over them, and that's where the, the Davidic part of the covenant comes in. So if you start in verse number two there, it starts right off the bat, as you can see, with, with Abraham. And as you may remember from Sunday school and other classes, if you look at the genealogy of Mary in Luke chapter 3, this is the genealogy of Joseph, of course, as you just heard. If you look at the genealogy of Mary in Luke chapter 3, that one starts with who? Do you remember? It starts with Adam. It starts with Adam. This one doesn't start with Adam. This one starts with Abraham. And, of course, uh, part and parcel of that is because Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they're all writing to different target audiences, different target audiences. Uh, for example, the book of um, uh, Mark is written towards a Roman audience. And if you were to watch the book of Mark on film, the, the way that it would cut scenes and the way it would fade into next scenes would be totally different than the way the book of Matthew would be on film. Matthew is targeted specifically for Jewish people. And uh, we'll get to that, like I said, more in a minute as well. The book of Luke, for example, that one was targeted for who? Just this one specific person, Theophilus, the excellent Theophilus, who must have been a very, very, very wealthy man who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and hired or made a huge donation to the church in Jerusalem or something like that for, for Luke to compose this letter for him, telling him from Luke's perspective the, the origins and et cetera, and the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are all different target audiences in the, in the first century. So this one's written specifically for Jews. Jews, what does a Gentile care about an Abrahamic covenant or a Davidic covenant? It doesn't mean much to them as much, I should say, as it would to a Jew. So he starts with Abraham. Now, of course, Abraham, and we're going to just fly through these uh, three different sections in chapter one here. Verses, where do we have? Verses two through verse number six, verses two through six, that covers a period, those four verses, it covers a period of about 1,200 years. Starts with Abraham, like I mentioned, born in 2165 approximately BC. Of course, as everybody knows, uh, when he was 75 years old, God promised him a son, and that son didn't come for another 25 years for that prayer to be answered. And of course, the Bible calls Abraham and Sarah, quote unquote, in Hebrews 11, I didn't say it, God did, 75 to 100, as good as dead. <laughs> in regards to making babies, okay, <laughs> as good as dead. And yet, what does God do? Even though he's 75, God answers the prayer. And then, of course, along the way, when he's 86, he tries, because God didn't answer the prayer fast enough for his liking. He, as you know, he takes matters into his own hands, goes in onto his handmaid, and, of course, Ishmael is born. And then you have the father of the Arabs and the fathers of the Jews right there. And, um, but even when the child was finally born, when Isaac was finally born, when he was 100 and, and Sarah was 90, what happened 37 years later? Take now thy son, Thy only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, the one through whom all the families and all the nations of the earth will be blessed, take him and offer him there upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of, or sacrifice him, commit to human sacrifice. Now, Isaac was 37 years old. Abraham was an old man. Isaac could have very easily overpowered the old man. But he didn't. He was compliant with his father's will. So Abraham, obeying his conscience, obeying what God told him, what God revealed to him, God himself puts the promise in jeopardy. 
and God intervenes at the exact last minute. He stretched forth his hand. He took the knife to slay his son, and the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven, and he had to say his name twice, and he had to yell it. Abraham! Abraham! To get him to stop, because he knew he would go through with it, because he was faithful to God and was compliant with God's will. So through Isaac, of course, then, just like in the situation with Abraham, Isaac is not the oldest. Ishmael is the oldest. And, um, and he gives birth to Jacob. Then Jacob's not the oldest. Esau is the older, not Jacob. So God is in many ways going against the cultural norms of the day where the firstborn is the one who had to receive the double portion, who received uh, the inheritance. But God works in ways that are mysterious to us. Doesn't go with the firstborns, go with the ones whose heart he's after. And he goes with Jacob. And um, from Jacob, as you can see there in verse number two there, Jacob was born Judah and his brethren. So this is the pool, his brethren, these 12 boys, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Joseph. Through these 12 boys, through one of them, the Messiah will come. So... 12 boys divided by 100, you had an 8.5% chance those 12 boys of being the progenitor of the Messiah. Well, as we know from verse number 3, and of course back in Genesis chapter 49, on Jacob's swan song when he was on his deathbed, gave his final blessings, put his house on order, we know that the scepter, the right to rule, shall not depart from Judah. So Judah's born. Why didn't Reuben get it, the firstborn? Why didn't Simeon and Levi get it, who are second and thirdborn? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, once again, it doesn't have anything to do in God's economy with you're the firstborn, so you're getting it even if you don't deserve it. It's the one who has the right heart. That's the one who gets it. And Reuben was disqualified, even though he was the oldest from receiving the birthright, because he went in onto his father's handmaid, his concubine. You can't do, you can't do those kind of things. Simeon and Levi, they were disqualified from the birthright. Why? Because of their behavior. They slaughtered every... As you know, the account in Genesis, remember in Shechem, when they were new in the land and they deceived the inhabitants of Shechem and told the men in the city that if you want to be part of our team, you have to receive the symbol, the token of the covenant, which is the circumcision. So all the men, in the, I don't have it memorized, sorry, but all the men in the city were circumcised and while all the men were sore, the city was totally vulnerable. And then Simeon and Levi, probably with some hired mercenaries, went in there and slaughtered every man, woman, and child, just cut all their throats and destroyed them all. Which made Jacob, who's the father of these crazy people, <laughs> it made, according to the Bible, it made Jacob's name stink among the people in the land. Because I, I can't trust you. And so Simeon and Levi are disqualified. Next in line is Judah. And Judah's not perfect. I mean, at least Judah tried to rescue Joseph from being sold into slavery in Genesis chapter 37. But Judah is the one through whom now the line of the Messiah, the tribe through which the line of the Messiah well, comes in. Like I said, Judah's no saint. We see here in verse number four that he went in onto Tamar, a Canaanite prostitute. And he got the Canaanite prostitute pregnant, and she bears sons, Pharaoh's and Zerah, as you can see right here. And then we go down, Pharaoh's, we got Esron, Esron, we got Adam, Adam, and we got Aminadab, verses three, four. We don't even know who these people are, really. We don't know much about them. All we know is that in verses three and four, right now you're in, the, in bondage in Egypt, they're in Goshen, the 430 years in captivity. And, but what is the truth is that if the Messiah would have been born, if this would have been the fullness of time while they were in Egypt, any of these men mentioned here, 
in the fullness of time, if God would have chosen now is the time, this would have been the progenitor, this would have been the father of the Messiah. All of these men, because of the head, the sheik, the, the leader, the tribe of the clan of Judah. One of those people, verse 4, for example, someone is mentioned there named Nasun. All we know about him is that, is that when the tribes of Israel left Egypt and they were wandering through the wilderness through those 40 years, in order to keep you know, the apples and the oranges separate, to keep the, the tribes together, they would follow in the wilderness, they would follow this gigantic, probably wooden sign. And on that wooden sign, it would have the symbol, the icon, like the Nike Swish or whatever, of what your particular tribe was. So Judah doesn't say it, but it was probably a lion on the tribe. Dan, maybe a gazelle or something like that. On the, to get what I'm going after. And so the, the, at the head of that, leading that tribe, the founder, as it were, is that guy right there, Nasun. Okay? So the point is, is that even though it doesn't look like it with the names, we're staying inside specifically that 8.5% chance Judah had right, out of the 12 boys of being the Messiah. And then verse number 5, you started in verse 2 at 2165 B.C. When you get down to verse 5, you're all the way into 1400 B.C., 700 years and two verses. And uh, you get another... Canaanite woman in the mix, Rahab, and uh, the Lord Jesus' family tree, like our family trees in, in many ways, was, is full and is currently full of decadence, of corruption, of ruin, of sin, people in need of a savior. Okay? And then you get down to verse number six, and it says, Jesse begot David the king. And so that first list from verses 2 to verse number 6, which covers about 1,200 years of history, that first block of three that we're going to go through, that ends with essentially man was born for greatness. started with the promise given to Abraham, and then it culminates 1,200 years later with the promise given to David to rule and reign as king. Then that second block of 14 names in verses 6 through verse number 11. That first block took 1,200 years. The second block of 14 Names takes, quote, unquote, only 400 years. Now, this second block of 14 names, these names are more familiar to us from Sunday school and things like that. Things like Hezekiah, things like Josiah, right? Solomon, etc. But if you just quickly peruse through those names, even though they're all kings of Judah, even though they're all descendants of Judah, even though they're all descendants of David, David's the only one in that list who has the title right there in verse 6 the king. Even though all the others were kings and that second list of 14 names, Matthew does not attach that title to their name because one of the many purposes of Matthew framing this book like he framed it was for a Jewish audience. And it's all about David as being the fulfillment, David being the son of David, the promised Messiah through whom the Messiah would come. Okay? And then, of course, you know how it is in the second block of 14 names. You have, I hate to use the terminology, but you have good king, bad king, good king, bad king, these kind of things. Up, down, up, down. But for sure, this is when decadence, this is when corruption, this is when the government became perverted. This is when some of the kings started to institute pagan heathen worship, Molech worship, sacrifice human babies. Hezekiah's own son. You know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. <laughs> Hezekiah's son, right, introduced that worship. Molech worship into Jerusalem, where these ladies would give birth to a child, and then they would have the priests play the drums so loud that they couldn't hear the baby scream, 
And then they would take these babies right outside of Jerusalem, right in the Valley of Gehenna, I've been there a hundred times, and offer them as live human sacrifices to Moloch. So things are just out of control. And God is starting to really get frustrated with his people. And they are on the verge, whether they realize it or not, of being utterly destroyed. In fact, he mentions that utter destruction, doesn't he? When you get to verse number 11 about the time that they were carried away into Babylon. But before they were carried away into Babylon, on the ninth day of Av, in 586 BC, it's the saddest day in the Hebrew calendar. Even to this very day, if you go to a Jewish, a religious Jewish person's house, you'll see they have this beautiful, nice house, but they'll have one part of the wall that's unfinished with, I mean, the nails are showing, the, the tape, the mud showing. It's just like, why don't you cover that up or finish it? But they would say, it is to remind me that I'm incomplete. These are people who don't believe in Jesus, as the Jews who don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But they don't have a temple. And that mark, that blemish, that mar, reminds them that they're incomplete, that they don't have a temple, that they don't have a place to worship the living God. It's the same reason like you see in the movies that they do at a Jewish wedding, at the elation, the height. They, what do they do? They smash a glass, don't they, wrapped in a napkin. That's to symbolize the boom, the destruction of the temple. So even to this very day, that right there, verse number 11, that's the biggie. But they deserved it because the nation was decadent and corrupt and went after other gods. But right before it hit midnight at 1159, Jeremiah the prophet went in, verse number 11, to Jeconiah. Jeconiah was the last king, the last son of David to rule on the throne of Jerusalem. And I don't have it memorized, but in chapter 22, verse number 30, Jeremiah, long story short, told Jeconiah that, from henceforth, because of the compound sins of the nation, one upon after another, after decades, after hundreds of years, that the throne of David is cursed. Perpetual curse. No redemption. Perpetually cursed. And that no son of David will ever rule on the throne of Jerusalem again. It's done. Party's over. No chance of forgiveness. Well... And that was the case. When they came back after the seven-year captivity and, and exile, they never had a king again, right? You know, Haggai, remember these names? Zerubbabel, right? These are governors. These, you know, these are satraps. Jesus is a satrap under the authority of, of Persia or Greek or Rome. And even during the intertestamental period with the Hasmoneans and et cetera, right? Between Matthew and Malachi, that period right there, there were no kings of David ruling on the throne. When Herod became king, Herod wasn't even a Jew, they said, the wise men, where is he that was born king of the Jews? You weren't born king of the Jews. You're only a half Jew, and it's not your mom's side. It's your dad's side, and you bought the throne through your craftiness and wisdom. But he bought the throne. So there will never, ever be a son of David who rules on the throne of Jerusalem again, which is why, which is why Jesus, my friends, needed to be adopted He's in that line. He has the right credentials. He has the right paperwork. He's the son of David. But in order to get around that curse put on the throne by Jeremiah in chapter 22, verse 30, he had to be adopted. So that second list of 14 names ends with utter ruin, utter catastrophe. The nation is just destroyed. Then we have finally, guys, that third block in verses 12 through 17. That third block only covers 400 as it were, 400 years of history. This is the intertestamental period, like we mentioned, between Matthew and Malachi. This is uh, where First and Second Maccabees and et cetera were written and composed. By the way, First and Second Maccabees, even though they're not included in the canon of Scripture, and they themselves admit, Maccabees admits it's not inspired, but Maccabees is fundamental 
to understanding definitely parts of Daniel. There's no way you could understand, for example, Daniel chapter 11. No way, unless you have Maccabees. So Maccabees gives you all of this history right in between those bookends, between Matthew and Malachi. So it's profitable. It's very profitable. But that third list then in verses 12 and following, we don't know any of the names of these people in this list except the first one and the last one. Zerubbabel, we know him, of course. His name literally means, you can hear it, Zerubbabel, born in Babylon or born in Babel, sown, literally sown in Babylon. And then the rest of the guys, we don't know anything about them. Nothing at all. All we do know is what we can infer from their names. So, for example, in verse number 13, you have someone there named Abiud. Abiud, we don't know anything about this person except his name. Ab is a clip form of father, Abba, as you know. And Iud is a clip form of Iud is uh, Yehudim, or the Jew, Judah. So his name means, I am the father of Judah. Hold that thought. You get down to example in verse number, where's another one we could do? Um, in verse number uh, Elihud, verse number 14. El is a clipped form of Elohim, or God. Iud is a clipped form, once again, of Yehudim, or Judah. So his name means, my God is the God of Judah. So even though it's a period of, as it were, darkness in regards to revelation, even though it's a period of time where the nation's in straits, even though it looks like maybe God will never do this in our lifetimes, what he's promised is to bring about this, this redeemer, this savior, the names, the names their parents gave them show that these people still believed in God's promises. They still believed in the hope of God's word, and their names indicated that. Well, finally then, you get the fullness of time, over 2,000 years from the time of Abraham. Then you get down to verse number 16. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Number one, as you can see through this list, it's all about so-and-so begat so-and-so, right? It says that. So-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so. It doesn't say that Joseph begat Jesus. And that is an intentional omission. You're supposed to see that. The light's supposed to go on there that, wait a second. How could he not begat him if, if he's his son? And, of course, that's the whole point of the second part of this opening chapter of the Bible is the cardinal doctrine of the virgin birth, the virgin conception that that's how Jesus had to avoid the curse, was to be born of God through Mary in the line of Joseph to get around the curse on the throne. So we have 14 names and one, 14 names and two, and then the third one, which once again ends with man is born for greatness, the son of David's back, that one has 14. Why? What is this 14, 14, 14 business? Because if you go back to Matthew's ancestry.com, Matthew's primary source when he's composing Matthew, there's way more than 14 names. The Bible shows that. There's way more than 14 names between these three sections. In Jewish thinking and practice, it's not a big deal. They don't even have a word, as some of you know, they didn't even have a word for grandson. It's just son, you know? So they're okay with skipping, especially, you know, those crazy uncles, right, who were horse thieves or something like that, right? Skipping them in the, in the genealogy. But he deliberately does that, so it's 14, 14, and 14, because remember in the world of the Bible, letters and numbers are the same. So if I was to say, I'll meet you at 3 o'clock, I would say, I'd, I'll see you at C, ABC. Or um, you're the best, I would say, you're, you're Aleph, you're A. So the letters have a numerical weight, that's the point. That's why in Revelation, in 13, as you might remember, he says, here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding, or those of you who are with it, count the number of the beast. So you have to learn how to do gematria, numerology, whatever. 
Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. It's an individual, not a woman. It's a man. It's not Hillary Clinton. Sorry. And his number is 666. So the numerical weight of the name of the Antichrist, of the beast, is 666. It just so happened that the numerical weight of David's name is 14. Because Dalit, a Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, then a Vav, hey Vav, and then another Dalit. 4 plus 6 plus 4 is 14. So when you add up all of world history, what he's saying is the bottom line is, is that Jesus is the son of David. Now to us as, he, as Gentiles, I was going to say heathens, but we're not heathens. <laughs> as Gentiles, we don't, we don't, what do you care about your genealogy? I mean, you might care, but you don't know much. Like on my, my mom's side, I can go back like seven or eight. On my dad's side, I can go back about four or five, maybe six. Sarah, we have one in our house. She can go back on her mom's side, maybe 10, you know. But I'm sure that most of us in this room can't go further back than the 1700s or something like that. But to the Jews, I mean, this is, this is fundamental because the genealogy means everything. It means what your blessings are. It means where you live. It means who you can marry. I mean, everything is revolved around land and family, around the genealogy. Okay? Now, all that being said, locked in 1 through 17. Let's do the next passage as we continue along. Verses 18 through 25, the narrative account. Verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Let's pin up that thought for a second. In other words, he is here to clarify any fake news that's out there concerning the origins, the genesis, the birth of the Son of God. And there was definitely fake news. We know that there was fake news from the end of John, remember, in regards to his body being stolen. Remember that? And not, he wasn't physically resurrected. There was tons of rumors going around Jerusalem at that time, according to the book of John, about that. So he's trying to set the record straight. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When is his mother Mary was espoused or engaged or betrothed to Joseph? Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Let's pause real quick. There are two stages to the Jewish wedding, even to this very day, just like in our culture to a certain degree. You have the betrothal or the engagement period. That can last a year or more. It can last a long time. In antiquity, during this period of time, this is when not only the character, the moral character, the virtue of the individual was put to test. Is this person really worth marrying kind of thing? Right? This is also when negotiations would take place. So I have three daughters, for example, and um, if you wanted to marry one of my daughters, you, in the words of the Bible, you would essentially be taking away a third of my workforce when you took her if I lived thousands of years ago. I mean, who's going to milk the cows? Who's going to watch the sheep? Who's going to cook the... Th you know what I mean? I need someone to replace what you're taking from me. And in order for you to compensate me, you would, you would pay me. And if you didn't have money, then you would be like Jacob, who would have to, quote, unquote, volunteer his services. Pat, you totally could have had me on the hook. <laughs> I was broke. I just finished school. I could have worked for you for free for a decade. <laughs> but that's just how it worked. So they're in this first stage of the Jewish wedding, okay, where we're testing each other's virtue and et cetera. We're getting to know each other. Negotiations are taking place. And... Um, as a footnote, even to this very day, when you go to Israel and you get in a car and you get off the, 
you know, the main routes, going to the main place and getting to the, the Arab, especially the Arab villages, you'll see houses. And these houses to an American look hideous because they have all this rebar sticking up out of the roof. And you, why don't you finish that? What are you doing, you know? And, uh, but to them, it, that's a symbol of hope, a symbol of blessings, a symbol of things to come because in their world, you marry the girls off as soon as possible, okay? You really did. And, um, but the boys stayed home. The boys were the social security. The boys were the safety network. The boys were the defense, the protection, the Medicare, the Medicaid, who took care of everything for the mom and the dad. So the boy would never leave. What the boy would do is during that betrothal period, he would put that room addition onto the father's house. And then once the first stage of the Jewish wedding ended, the betrothal period, then he would go get the girl, then bring her back to the father's house. And that's exact, even though we don't think that way, which you should, this is exactly the same pattern that God in his wisdom has used for us as the bride of Christ. Right now, we're in the first period. We're in the betrothal period. So we're in the engagement period. And, the, and um, how does it go in Revelation chapter 19? Um, and she was clothed with white garments, and the white garments are the righteous acts of the saints. So we're in this betrothal, this testing period, the bride of Christ is with Christ. Christ is not here. He's in heaven. What is he doing in John 14? Preparing a place for us, adding, our translation says mansions, but the idea there is like apartments, little apartments onto the father's house because he's a tecton, he's a carpenter. That word for carpenter doesn't mean a hammer and nail guy like Jesus was a carpenter. The word tecton, it means a master builder. Mosaics, floors, walls, roofs, he could do everything, okay? And so that's what's happening right now. He's building a place for us. And then when he's done building that place, he comes and gets the girl, gets the bride of Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then brings her back home. Same thing going on here. So in verse number, where are we at? 18, these are the circumstances that precede the nativity. They're engaged. It's a trial, character, and virtue, and etc. Then what happens? Well, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. Let's pin up that thought for a second. Once again, verses 1 through 17 cover approximately 2,200 years of world history. The second part, verses 18 to 25, one night. Just one night. One night in Nazareth. So they're engaged. And somehow, we're not told why, but in verse number 19, see, Joseph's called her husband, even though they haven't said, I do, and, you know, kissed and did the second part, the hoopah, right, and got off and went on a honeymoon to Acapulco or something. So they're still considered a couple, okay, even though they haven't said, I do. But he's called a just man. That word for just man, it means that it's the same word you use for Zechariah and Elizabeth. So this is before the church was born, he was, but he was someone who feared God, who kept his commandments, was Torah observant. Right? He did everything that he could possibly do within his own person to please God. So he's outstanding. That's the point. He's no loser. He's outstanding. And what does he find out? Mary's pregnant, and I'm not the father. What does he do? Well, um, he didn't want to, it says he didn't want to make her a public example, but he was minded to put her away privately. In other words, he had come to the conclusion that he's going to divorce her first thing in the morning. I didn't sign up for this. 
I live, you think your neighbors know your business. <laughs> you try living in a slow-paced, tight-knit, conservative world in the Galilee and the Nazareth Ridge where no one goes anywhere outside of town. I mean, everyone lives there. What are the neighbors going to, no one's going to believe us? Okay, <laughs> you know. So he's, he, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not, I can't do this. I'm out. I'm going to divorce her secretly in the morning in the presence of two or three witnesses. And I'm going to do it gently. And I'm out. Now, according to the latter of the law in Deuteronomy 22:21, Mary was supposed to, for playing the harlot, she was supposed to be executed on the doorsteps of her parents' house according to Deuteronomy 22:21, but this goes to show you that they, all, that they always didn't interpret the law the same or at least apply the law the same because she was supposed to be executed according to the letter of the law in Deuteronomy 22:21. but maybe during this time, 2000 or 1400 years after the law was given, especially in a liberal place like Galilee, maybe the interpreters of the law didn't push that so much. Does that make sense? Okay, well, now what? Well, like I said, he decides to divorce her in secret as soon as he wakes up first thing in the morning. All right? Look at, have you ever thought about that, how close it was to not happening on one level? Like on one level? It was that close to not happening. Verse number 20. But while he thought on these things, pause real quick, so he's in bed, he's lying, he's thinking, he's, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? That idea for while he thought on these things, that has the idea in the Greek that he has turned them over in his mind. He's chewed on them, thought upon them, and he's made his decision. So he's locked in. That's important in a second. He's set that this is what he's doing in the morning. She's done. I'm done. We're out. Well, then what happened? The angel of the Lord <laughs> appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So this, my friends, this portion right here, the second part is the ultimate testimony of what we call the virgin conception, or the virgin birth. You know, when we say, who knew no sin, that he might be made for sin for us, that's this. So Joseph, very much like Abraham, right? Abraham obeyed God's word. Abraham was compliant to God's will. Abraham did exactly what God told him to do, which is to slay his son, to end the life of his first son. And Abraham, being obedient to God, to the nines all the way to the end, had, the only way that he could have been stopped <laughs> was for an angel to come and to stop him. Same thing with Joseph in verse number 20. This promised child through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Joseph, he's just obeying the law. He's just obeying the Torah. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. Maybe he, maybe he did intend to put away her life the next day. I don't know. But God knew that Joseph wasn't monkeying around and he was a just man and he followed God's word to the end. God had to send an angel to intervene. And that's what happened. He was stopped, like Abraham was stopped, at the last second from harming the promised child because he was just obeying his conscience and God's word. Who thought it would be easy to be a Christian? My goodness. You know, this is like hard stuff. Oh, I thought all I had to do was walk down the aisle at the Billy Graham crusade and sign a card and I was done. Like, this is hard, you know? Well, the angel continues, she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus or Yeshua, 
for he shall save his people from their sins. As you might remember, uh, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. They're the same names, but just from different languages. And I mean Savior, Savior of the world, salvation. And uh, why did it have to be this way? I mean, couldn't you find an easier way, Lord God? <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, verse number 22 tells us all this was done. Why? Why did you have to do it this way? <laughs> that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, pause real quick, in verse number 22, when it says that it might be fulfilled, that's used all throughout the book of Matthew. Because Matthew, as we hinted at at the beginning, is targeting a a Jewish audience. A Jewish audience cares that these things are happening in order to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. What does a Roman care? What does a Gentile care? They don't care as much as a Jew would care. So all these things were done in order to fulfill the 300 plus statements that have to do with the first coming of Christ in the Old Testament. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. So of all of those things that needed to be fulfilled on the pages of the Old Testament, primarily was 714 of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah 714, you're going to hear this. It's a quote. Verse 23 is a quote from Isaiah 714. But in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, the word virgin that's used in Isaiah for the word virgin, it does not 100% and don't throw anything or get up and walk out yet. Let me finish my statement. <laughs> In the book of Isaiah, the word that's used for virgin, it does not always mean a virgin with a capital V. It could be that word can be Alma, that word can be used for a young girl who is married, who's known a man and even has children. It's true. Okay? It's a very flexible word. But, and here's the clincher, this is what's gonna make you sleep tonight. <laughs> The clincher is that when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, you with me? In the Septuagint, in the third century BC, those scribes, this is 300 years before Jesus came. So there isn't any Christian pressure or influence on these guys. Make sense? The word that they chose for virgin in the Greek, 100% always means with a capital V, a virgin who has not known a man ever. So it goes to show you that even though that Hebrew word Alma was used as flexible, they understood it. The scribes, the teachers of the law, the scribes, except they understood that word specifically to mean a, a capital V virgin. Okay. Verses 24 and 25 as we finish up. Then what happens after he's revealed this? Then Joseph, being raised from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. In other words, he kept with his righteous character. He lived up to being a just man. He went, walked across town, probably to Nazareth, got Mary, said, I do, as it were, even though she probably wasn't even showing yet, right? Got her, brought her back to his father's house, and then for the next, whoever knows how many months, stayed there until Mary wanted to go down and visit right, her cousins down in the south while she was, right, before she gave birth and to pay the taxes like you heard the children recite today. Well, he knew her not. He didn't want to go in unto her, the virgin, until the child was brought forth, lest she be contaminated. Knew her not till she had brought forth her first son. And he, that's important, so important, he called his name Jesus. So by naming the child, which is huge, Joseph then publicly acknowledges 
Jesus as a lawfully born member of his family with all the rights, all the credentials, all the paperwork, everything that you would possibly need to demonstrate that you are an exact, exact descendant of King David and you have 100% of the right and the rule, according to the paperworks, to be king over Israel. That all comes in that, in the naming of the child. And it clinches his place. It clinches Jesus' place in the Davidic line. Like good name Jesus, like the name Joseph, or I should say Joshua, Joshua the high priest. Jesus mediates between man and God, like Joshua the warrior, in the book named after him. He leads his people into the promised land. This genealogy, this and this narrative account is a beautiful testimony of God's grace and God's kindness through the ministry of his son. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. People like us, people in our, in our families <laughs> who we love, but are horse thieves <laughs> and robbers and stealers. God so loved the world. And all someone has to do, as you know, is believe. And that, of course, is the whole reason. I know it's kind of cliche, but it's true. It is the reason for the season. It's why in the next 14 days we sing and rejoice and we give thanks. Because it's only once a year. Once a year that man, man can really dwell on why he can live forevermore. And that's because of Christmas Day. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that even though it can be difficult to understand at times, it is true. Thank you that you do not waste ink. Thank you everything that's there is supposed to be there. Help us to study it. Help us to show ourselves approved unto you. Help us to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us to, 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 to accurately interpret and apply your word. We love you so much, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.